All right. Well, as we're taking offering, if you guys take out your Bibles, uh, by the way, if you need a Bible, uh, we have some Bibles back there uh, for you. Just raise your hand and we'll make sure one of the ushers gets a Bible to you. Um, reading from the English Standard Version. And if you don't have a Bible, um, we want you to have that Bible, okay? Um, we want to preach through the whole counsel of God and Scripture, and, um, and we want to make sure that we're all studying Scripture together. Um, let me go ahead and uh, get started here. If you would turn to Mark chapter 12, we are right now going through a sermon series from the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And at this point, we're in chapter 12, and we today are going to begin at verses 13 through uh, 17. Mark 12, 13 through 17. Let me go ahead and uh, read. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearance, appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would show us yourself and ourselves rightly as we study your word together. Uh, for, for those of us who have faith in Christ, would you mature us and strengthen us in your word? And for those of us who are searching for you, would you reveal yourself? In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you about a conversation that took place between uh, my wife Laura and I and my dad and stepmom, maybe... Uh, 10 years ago. It was one of those heart-to-heart open conversations that you might have with someone who has a different religious background from you, but you care about them. And, and the, the conversation and trying to understand one another led to the topic of government and the role of government in religion. And my dad said this, I remember the words very clearly. Um, he said, the lesser peace must come before the greater peace. My dad and stepmom are part of the Baha'i faith, and um, like Islam, that religion uh, strongly believes that the state is an essential mechanism for religious reform and rene- renewal, uh, that God will work through a, a, a uh, world state to... Uh, to promote uh, the religious teachings. In their mind, getting everyone to obey the laws in society uh, through this government would inevitably lead lead to the greater internal spiritual change. Now, to me, this was a new idea. Um, I hadn't really considered it, and it wasn't a convincing idea. 
Um, growing up in America, I was uh, very, uh, I, I strongly felt that the, the, the government and the religion were two separate spheres. And while at this point I couldn't really present a strong argument for this, it just, it simply felt right. And um, I had assumed wrongly that this was the case in, in most nations in the 21st century um, and, and in most religions. And, and other than that, I hadn't given it much thought. But clearly my dad had a different vision. You know, codified in his religious teachings, um, uh, he thought that uh, the Baha'i faith had a, a superior understanding um, of what Christians didn't even seem to care about or think about for that matter. Um, and, and, and so he viewed my understanding of the way that the state and religion ought to ultimately work together as God meant it to be as, as being uh, some unclear, uh, watered down. And at the time, I probably was unclear and, and watered down about it. Um, uh, but in study, I realized that uh, the Bible has a lot to say about this topic. Um, and the passage that we're reading today, I know you think, oh, great, another sermon about taxes. No, just kidding. Um, uh, uh, the reality is that, uh, yeah, this is not just a sermon about taxes. This is a, a, a situation that happened, a vignette in the last week of Jesus' life here on earth um, that, that deals with taxes. But this, this scene represents really what is a, a watershed event that would... Uh, reverberate through centuries and, and really uh, clarify uh, some new ideas about the, the relationship between the political sphere of the world and the, the church. And so for that reason, that should be significant to us today because you know, we're called to give an account for our faith. So in order to understand this passage, I, I want to make sure we spend some time on the context and then I'll move through the outline. Um, now, we don't know the exact timing of this scene, but we do know it's on the Tuesday of Passover week. Um, Jesus, just previously, uh, we can assume, had uh, given this scathing parable that was very, not veiled at all, very pointed against those who were going to kill him. Um, and he would be teaching on Solomon's porch outside of the temple, and inevitably crowds would have gathered. Um, he obviously had no problem challenging ruling authorities, and they come to him uh, with this kind of attitude where, you know, we're going to get you. Um, what's going on this week as Passover week, um, there's a lot of power in Jerusalem. It was the spiritual center of the nation, and uh, under Rome, there was a lot of political power there too. And just this week, Jesus comes in, and people have been seeing the tectonic uh, plates of power kind of bumping up against each other. And there was this general sense that something big was going to happen. We're at the epicenter of uh, an event that's going to happen. People are talking about Jesus. They're talking about the message, the gospel, the kingdom of God. And uh, those who have current power, we've seen as a theme in Mark, are a little bit concerned about this, to say the least. And so in this section of Mark, we're going to see a series of pointed questions that are aimed at Jesus. And the goal of these questions is to trap him. 
Now, Passover week for the Jews was the high holy season. Uh, Jews from the surrounding region would come to Jerusalem, the religious center and capital, and it was a time of celebration of the Lord's provision of his deliverance. It was a time of solidarity, a time of national pride, um, uh, recognizing that you are the chosen people, uh, uh, celebrating uh, being the ones who endure, uh, the ones who are delivered out of the hands of the oppressors by God a time of tremendous nationalistic pride. And in this context, all these people are coming to hear Jesus. Uh, curiously, there are two groups that are interrogating Jesus here, uh, representing two separate powerful par parties. We've seen the Pharisees, and we know who they are. They're the religious elite. Um, they call the shots. They, they, they're basically the judge and jury for any kind of uh, uh, infraction that might be legal or religious because those things were in many ways the same. Um, and uh, they are a, not a new group to Jesus. Um, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, probably sent these guys. But then there's a separate group. They're the Herodians. And these people were essentially the lapdogs of King Herod, who was the, puppel, uh, the puppet king. He was the sellout uh, to the Romans. Uh, he had gained wealth and influence, and so did his father, Herod the Great, by being obedient to the Roman Empire. So you have the faithful religious power center, and then you have the uh, turncoats. So it would be a mistake to say that these two groups were in any way sympathetic to one another. The Herodians were uh, members of the cultural zeitgeist at the time, the Roman Empire. Um, and then, of course, um, they would have followed uh, the, the uh, dictates of Herod. Um, Herod Antipas actually spent time in Rome. He wore a toga, right? Um, and he uh, ate Roman food, and he just loved all things Rome. Um, and he had amassed tremendous wealth, and, and so had these, these guys. There's really just one thing they had to do, and that is make sure that you keep Tiberius Caesar happy. Uh, Tiberius Caesar at this point was nowhere near the region. Um, he was in southern Italy off the Amalfi Coast on an isle called Capri. They make um, juice for children. Um, the, uh, uh, and, uh, and the, uh, in Capri, uh, he had this palace, uh, on a, um, uh, uh, 1,000 foot, uh, uh, sheer cliff called Tiberius's Leap, and really it should have been called Tiberius, uh, uh, throws you off this cliff. I mean, he, he was ruthless. Uh, uh, I, I won't go into detail because it's disturbing and you can't unthink the things that he did to people. Um, so you had to keep Tiberius happy and these people were happy to keep him happy because they could exact taxes from the people and there hadn't been a revolt in several years. But here comes Jesus. And, well, Jesus comes into town, and what are people saying? They're saying, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Or as Mark put it in chapter 11, verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Well, if, if, if that's not a potential threat, I don't know what is. 
So the Pharisees and the Herodians choose in this situation to embrace the political maxim, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, Both these groups wanted to maintain stability. They both had power. Um, It may have not been divided equally. Uh, There would be some resentment, but they recognized a common threat. Uh, the question they ask Jesus, right? Uh, it's a little bit of a letdown. Uh, they, they say, we know that you're a, a great teacher who speaks true. Uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Right? Should I fill out my FAFSA form? You know, it sounds uh, pretty irrelevant um, at first glance, uh, doesn't it? It's not irrelevant at all. It's a very important question, okay? Um, and I want to give just a little bit of background of why that question is uh, so important. How this is a real trap. Uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? This was a very loaded question. Uh, you know, we come from a no taxation without representation nation. Um, and because of this, we might assume, hey, I have some solidarity with these Jewish people here. Um, but the reality is the Jewish antipathy towards taxation was so much deeper than ours. Um, Taxes were a means of control, and they caused uh, a ton of poverty. Uh, Rome exacted its official tax through the poll tax where every male in the region had to come and pay some money, uh, and it also served as a census, so as a way of really controlling and knowing who people were, where they were, and, and keeping tabs. But then you had the local magistrates and rulers, Herod the Great, Uh, and Herod Antipas, they bled their people dry. Um, They oppressively taxed uh, such that money and even food were scarce things to rural people. Uh, If you lived in a rural region like uh, Nazareth in Galilee, for instance, you would probably be eating at a level of subsistence. Every year when you did harvest crops, you would have to go to the marketplace in the city, and uh, there was a great city um, that uh, the Herod, uh, Herod's built called Sepporis. And it was, you ever been on the five and seen that place called the Citadel? That's what this place was. I mean, it was, you know, s- m- minus the giant TV screens. It was a fortress, you know, a, a walled city. And it was uh, uh, a tremendous homage to uh, Herod. And so uh, th- that city, no surprise, was built from tax revenue, um, and you would have to go trade there because there's a marketplace in that city and farmers would bring their crops to market but of course in selling it they would be heavily taxed and as we know tax collectors then would maybe add their own uh, uh, premium to the tax and then if you happen to go to the temple too you would pay a temple tax um, and that temple tax uh, couldn't be paid in Roman coin had to be paid in uh, in shekels, and so there would be an exchange rate on that. Jesus would be well aware of all these oppressive taxes and fees that many of the Galileans suffered under, and the people coming to Jerusalem during Passover would would simply, this would be on everyone's mind. Probably everywhere they turned, they had to pay some sort of tax. 
Jesus growing up would have known so many of these rural people, these farmers. Jesus' family actually is probably a little bit more lucky because his dad was a carpenter. So he didn't grow food, and so he did, that food wasn't taxed. There wasn't a service tax at the time. And so it's probably the case that um, Jesus' family was, you know, by no means certainly rich, but uh, more well-off than most people. Jesus would remember that um, uh, excessive taxation uh, triggered a major event in his childhood. A.D. 6, uh, uh, there was a zealot named Judas of Gamala. And he went from town to town preaching a message of sedition and refusal to pay the unbearable taxes of Rome and its puppet government in Jerusalem. And Judas of Gamala, he actually raised a little army of common peasants, and it was enough to draw the attention of Herod Antipas, who ordered him dead. But uh, they were in a Roman region, so it was most likely Roman soldiers who killed him publicly, and as an example, most likely by crucifixion. In front of his own people, the Galileans, including people from Nazareth. There's a very good chance that uh, people Jesus knew growing up uh, witnessed this crucifixion. Jesus may have witnessed this crucifixion. The Roman message was clear, and it would not be until AD 66 that we'd see another political uprising, the Great Jewish Revolt, where the temple, as Jesus prophesied, would be destroyed. So here you have this situation where all these simply dressed religious pilgrims are coming to Jerusalem. They don't have much money. They've probably spent many uh, of their resources just, just coming to this place to celebrate uh, Passover. Um, and they'd paid immense taxes their whole lives. And so wondering what Jesus is going to say about this matter, it's not just a, a, a kind of a, a small issue. So here you have the common people dressed commonly. You would have the Pharisees dressed in their finest ceremonial robes with tassels galore, um, dressed for the holy days. Uh, those, those robes, of course, uh, purchased from proceeds of a temple tax. And then you would have uh, these other people, the Herodians, who would be dressed in fine linens and some even Roman togas also um, indirectly paid for uh, by taxes. And so they say Jesus doesn't uh, judge on appearances. Well, appearances, even in this group, there would be uh, really obvious that some people are benefiting from others. Jesus would be wearing a simple seamless uh, tunic and he would have simple sandals and his feet would be dirty because uh, every day he would hike from Bethany where he was staying at Lazarus's house two miles into the city. The political tension was palpable in this moment. It was more than a loaded question. It was really a loaded weapon because in the minds of uh, his questioners, anything Jesus is going to say is going to offend someone and that offense could be the people, which would uh, quell the, uh, the public support. Uh, it could be the Herodians, which, of course, uh, might offend uh, the Roman law. And uh, you could potentially uh, uh, offend the Pharisees. 
And so Jesus' answer uh, is, is very important. He gives them um, essentially 16 words in an object lesson that uh, really changes uh, the direction of political science discourse in the history of the world. Jesus uh, asks them for uh, a denarius after asking them pointedly, why do you put me to the test? They give him a coin. We don't know who. Uh, I assume it's probably not a Pharisee because uh, we'll get to their angle in a second. But the coin had Tiberius Caesar's image. And so I have a, um, a or it likely had Tiberius Caesar's image. It could have been some other coins in, um, in circulation. It could be a, been an older Caesar. But uh, assuming that it was this coin, uh, the image of it would be Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription on it would say, the son of the divine Augustus. And on the back side, the words in Latin, Pontifex Maximus, high priest. Uh, here's what the Pharisees anticipated. The second commandment in God's law is very clear. Thou shall have no other gods before me. Graven images of idols and gods were an abomination. Uh, to affirm the validity of this coin was a tacit affirmation of deity and uh, religious um, uh, superiority. But Jesus had clearly seen their trap. His short answer is a uh, profound new revelation about the very nature of government and religion and how they mix. Fundamentally, Jesus' answer clarifies uh, a few things uh, uh, for us today. It clarifies uh, our own, today, 21st century American Christians, our own obligations, what we owe and to whom we owe. The first thing I want to point out, and now we're in our outline, is that we owe something. Uh, Jesus' seven-word response about what we owe Caesar um, is important to our understanding of the role of government. Uh, the first thing we can conclude is that uh, we owe something. I mean, at face value, pay your taxes to the governing ruler. And he doesn't say, enjoy paying your taxes to the governing ruler, but still, pay your taxes, okay? Uh, but why? Well, what can we conclude beyond that simple fact? Well, the reality is that um, it is an affirmation that government and governance is part of what something God has established. And we can go several places in, in Scripture to see examples of this, but I want to go way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me, and go to verse 28. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 in a, a few places. But here we are in the Garden of Eden before the fall of man. So this is mankind in the state of the way things were supposed to be before sin entered the picture. It says, And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And then it talks about all the natural resources, um, plants and animals and fish that they would have dominion over. This is in the context of God's blessing them. Part of what God has designed and inaugurated in this uh, is that we are supposed to have stewardship and, to use a maybe stronger word, 
dominion over earth such that we subdue it, that we use the resources to create. Now, in Genesis 1, we see Adam and Eve. And um, as we move through Genesis, we see a family. And then very quickly, we see this same uh, mandate, this blessing to um, subdue and have dominion and to organize the world in a particular way uh, begins to take forms of larger groups of people from families to government. And this is in the very nature of who we are. We are creative, we are organizers, and God established this aspect of human nature. Authority and governance are given to us as as aspects of our nature. Um, Using the resources to multiply ourselves is part of that. And we don't need to look far in the real world. Every society has some form of government, whether it's a tribal society in Papua New Guinea or if it's the People's Republic of China. The alternative is anarchy and you know, cultures that embrace anarchy don't tend to last very long. In short, authority and governance are the things that God has instilled in our very nature. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't merely stop with, I created it in your nature to govern, and then we would see that in some corporate iteration in governing. Um, we see that he does more. We see that God has authority over all governments. If you turn to Romans uh, chapter 13, this would be a great grace group passage, verses 1 through 7, to consider. I'll just read the first few verses. Romans 13, 1 and 2, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. God is over all governments. He has instituted governments. And so we owe, uh, as subjects of a government, we owe the government something. Now, I imagine a lot of you have some legitimate questions that are popping around in your mind right now. Okay, for instance, um, what about oppressive governments? Are we to obey them too? Are Jesus and, and uh, in his words and, and, and Paul uh, uh, in his words saying that we ought to obey oppressive evil governments? Well, to answer this, let's just look at the government that Jesus and Paul lived in. Rome subjected, enslaved, and oppressed people. Caesar, uh, in this case Tiberius, was, um, was, was a, a violent and cared not for human life, and a lot of people didn't either. The Roman government was responsible for the most unjust act in history, killing Jesus Christ. Um, and they killed most of the apostles too, in humiliating and in violent ways. And yet, Jesus says, pay your taxes. Now, Jesus is no dupe here. He doesn't have a Pollyannish view of, well, maybe they're really a good government. No. 
Paul and Jesus and the apostles, they know that governments can be responsible for horrible injustices. They know that uh, the essential problem is, is human pride and we tend to uh, take the power we have and overreach and governments do that too. Jesus has predicted his own death three times. He sees all the pieces on the board. He knows where he's going. He knows the major moves that will take place. But he also has something else that, that uh, no one else listening to him has. He has uh, the end game in mind. He knows that uh, in three days from now, a small, seemingly uh, small event to most people will happen outside the gates of Jerusalem on Friday night. A seed will be planted, something as small as a mustard seed, and it will germinate in a tomb for three days. But he knows that something is, is going to happen that's going to lead to the greatest kingdom in the history of Everything, a kingdom that will be what government should be, that will be justly ruled by a good king, and it will grow and it will never die. And so 2,000 years later, probably until I, I, I said it, you may not have remembered that the particular Caesar, this uh, Pontifex Maximus, this son of God, was named Tiberius, right? Uh, Today, we name our dogs and our salads Caesar, okay? Um, but we name our kids after Bible characters and pop stars. Um, Jesus is looking at the long game here, okay? Um, the establishment of a kingdom that will be what every kingdom should be. <clears throat> so we owe government something, okay? It, it, it's true. Um, it, it honors God. In, in fact, we, we can see elsewhere in Scripture that it, it honors God. Um, we can do more than grudgingly pay our taxes. Okay? First uh, Timothy 2 says we should pray for our leaders. Okay? So our, our nation's leader is President Barack Obama. Do you pray for him? Uh, Paul, Paul says we should. Um, do you pray for government Governor Jerry Brown, do you, do you pray for um, people in the state assembly, um, people who don't necessarily um, uh, align themselves with your particular political views? Um, we're also supposed to be ready, in Titus 1 it says, for every good work with regard to being in society. We should be servants and subjects. Christians should be better citizens. In Peter, we find out that we have freedom um, as Christians, but our freedom should be used in servanthood to bring honor to everyone. And Peter says, including the emperor. Guys like Paul can be imprisoned, stoned, tied to whipping posts, exiled, shipwrecked, uh, and still say, Pray for your leaders because he, like Jesus, sees the long game. He knows that God, uh, God's hands aren't tied when it comes to governments. Think about it. Jericho built walls. God tore them down with 
a parade. Uh, Jesus was a slave, or sorry, Joseph was a slave in godless Egypt. God used that pagan nation to feed his own people. Um, God's own people strayed from him, and God allowed Babylon to come in, and there was this great exile. And then God used another foreign uh, leader, Cyrus of Persia, to go and free those people. So when I imagine Jesus answering this question and holding up this coin and saying, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, um, I just imagine cinematically Jesus has the coin between his thumb and his forefinger and just kind of flips it back at them. Give them what's theirs. There's something bigger here. Jesus could have stopped there, but he needs to uh, finish his thought because he has much more to say than that. And he wants uh, to point to something much bigger and more important than merely whether or not you should pay your taxes. He wants to point to what we ultimately owe, and that is that we owe everything. And the way he does this is by uh, comparison. He does not complete the comparison here, but he says, uh, whose image and likeness is on this coin? We'll pay that back to him and give to God what is God's. What bears God's image and likeness? You do. I do. Go back again to Genesis chapter 1. And this time I'm going to just back up one verse. Um, Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Jesus points to an important truth here. The truth that we humans uh, bear a unique place in God's created order. On one level, God owns everything. He created everything. The Bible says uh, God, actually Jesus created everything by a word of his power. So there's kind of the one general sense. Yeah, yeah, created everything. But we have the image of God. The image likeness. What kind of people have the image of other people? Children. Right? Um, We have the image of God in a unique relational way, and we owe everything to him. At least that's what Jesus' teaching points to. Okay, so let's just say, okay, great. I have the image of God. What does it mean to render myself to God? I mean, that's pretty abstract, right? Well, the, the reality is that God's entire law tells us what perfect obedience to God looks like. But there's a problem. If you turn over to Romans again in chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him, as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images uh, resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So we owe God everything, 
His very image is stamped upon who we are, who we are at the deepest level of being. And we have uh, worshipped other things. That's the story of sin. We owe him our lives, but because of sin, we rejected him. And so what did God do? He sought a people that he would make holy. He entered a covenant with them. What did they do? In sin, they worshipped other things. They rejected him. So God gave them his law so that they would know. He gave them ways to uh, repent and pay for their sins. Um, But they, again, rejected him. And then he gave them judges. And because they wanted them kings... And when they continued to reject him, he sent prophets to warn them, to call them back, and we continued to reject him. And God's story is one of relentless pursuit to claim that which is his, his own people. And not just the Jewish people, but as we learned last week in Eric Twisselman's sermon, all peoples. Prophet Micah tells us, He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly? But if we do justice, we do so imperfectly. Our kindness almost always has strings attached. And our good works result in a pride um, when we walk. We have divided hearts. We are supposed to render uh, to him uh, everything. We're made in his image likeness. You know, it's interesting. At this point, uh, we set a real big bar here. We, we must be perfect in order to, that's what God deserves is our perfect obedience. You know, a lot of religions in the world might say, uh, prefer point one, we owe God something, right? We owe God being a good person on the divine scales of, of judgment that my goods outweigh, um, uh, outweigh the bads. But no, God's word teaches us that we owe him everything. We owe him perfection. And um, there's nothing uh, we can do to give him what is owed to him. Have you ever been to one of those tourist attractions that allow you to imprint a penny with a logo from the tourist attraction? Okay. All right. I have a picture of a penny up here. Okay. Las Vegas, Nevada. Right? That was once a penny. That once looked like a penny. Image of a penny. In God we trust. Um... Have you ever tried to um, buy something with one of those flattened pennies from a store? No, you haven't. It's ridiculous and absurd. You would not do that. (laughs) Don't do that. Okay? Um, Those pennies, if it's at my house, they go wherever McDonald's toys go, right? They're worthless. They're worse than worthless. They're just the most horrible things. Um, (laughs) Right. So... Uh, you know, but, the, but that's what, like, when we render, you know, to God what's God, that's all we have to offer him is some distorted view of his, his image. That's the best, and, you know, the thing is, it reminds me of that, um, that poem that you use for communion, the lanyard. We, we, come, we somehow think that that's good enough for God, right? 
we think that this kind of broken, distorted thing that was once a, a uh, representative, uh, representation of his, his image is, is good enough, but it's not. In fact, the word image that Mark uses um, in this, when he's talking about whose, whose uh, picture is this, is the word icon, the Greek word icon, which has nothing to do with you know, a little icon in your computer. In the original meaning, it means a mirror-like, high-definition picture, a retina display, right? All right? Um, we are to reflect God's image perfectly, all right? Um, but we don't. We owe him everything. Um, our sin has made us like those worthless pennies. Um, and we can praise God, though, that there's good news. There's remarkable news for us. If you turn over to Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 13, it says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel. Jesus gives us redemption. We are purchased. The price is paid that we owe. The forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, interestingly enough, it might seem like a non sequitur, but it isn't. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And that word, he is the image, is the same word. He is the true image. He lived the perfect life. He is, as we know, God incarnate. And you know what? Because he was God incarnate, he owed no tax to God. Caesar doesn't owe Caesar taxes. God doesn't owe himself anything. I know we talk that way. Oh, I owe myself a dessert tonight or something. That's not what's going on here, okay? There's no, Jesus doesn't owe anyone anything he doesn't owe taxes. Uh, he didn't need to pay our back taxes. He paid our ransom. Um, he is the perfect image of God. In him we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And because of this, we owe nothing. We owe everything and nothing. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And the source of this power is in the gospel. The source of this kind of power isn't any government. It isn't in any uh, adherence to any religion. It is a unique source of power. Those are powerful things in this world. Religion and government, very powerful. But the source of this power as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 118, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, this conversation, you know, this question they, they brought Jesus, they thought they asked him the toughest question in the world. Jesus is thinking, why are you guys even thinking about this issue? I'm, God is building his kingdom. 
And I'm going to provide a way for everyone, no matter how tarnished and distorted you've made the image of God, I'm going to make you right. As an application, I just, if you're a believer, I really want to encourage you. It might be the case in recent months that you've been disheartened by the direction of our culture and the choices of our government. Okay? Um, I want to encourage you, strive to be good citizens and be subject to a government even if you disagree with it. Um, Pray for your leaders. uh, Pay your taxes. Contribute to society in meaningful and enriching ways. Uh, As the law, since we're a government by the people, I think it's a good thing to participate in government. Um, Vote your conscience. But uh, I would caution you of, of pitting yourself against the government unless, unless your government's asking you to do something that the Bible clearly asks you not to do. Um, we can look at the book of Acts. Uh, having received word from Christ, a mandate to go to all nations and preach the gospel, Well, we can see the apostles are told, don't preach the gospel. And they're happy to disobey. And they take the punishment for that disobedience. Um, I also want you to live fully. I want to encourage you to live fully in the reality that you both owe God everything and you owe him nothing. Christianity is unique in this way. Um, There's nothing to work off. If you merely think you owe God everything, that that lends itself to legalism. And if you merely think that, well, I owe God nothing, that can lead to, you know, big fancy word, antinomianism, kind of disregard for the the weight of the law, purpose of the law, and the consequences of the law. But um, I just want to encourage you, be Christians who live in both those places. And if you live in both those places, I think that results in tremendous gratitude the awareness that I owe everything to God and that I owe nothing. How great. Now, that message is for you if you're just exploring Christianity now, too. We want you to know that, but um, it's more than just saying, hey, you need a personal relationship with Jesus. That's true, but you need a personal relationship on his terms, which, which, which means accepting him on his terms, repentance and belief. And we want to help you do that. Come find me, elders, or ushers. Because it is through the power of the gospel that you will find real peace and security. And my father talked about the greater peace and the lesser peace. The peace that Christ offers is first and foremost peace with God. Peace between God and man. But in this world, that peace extends into the world where we live as living sacrifices. Um, being good citizens, um, and and striving to honor God. Secure through the atoning work of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I I know that's a a lot to think about. I thank you, Father, for your Spirit's work in our hearts, Lord. Um, Help these things sink in, Lord, um, and help us uh, to be more grateful as we go out into our week and this world and this place you've put us, Lord. We know you're sovereign over creation, over nations, and our own lives. And and we, uh, we trust you because of that. In Jesus' name, amen.